Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2017 Autumn Retreat. Our theme this year is Restoring Economic Prosperity. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. This panel discussion is entitled The Need for Regulatory Reform. It features Hoover Senior Fellow John Cochran, Hoover's Robert Wesson Fellow in Science and Technology, Dr. Henry Miller, and Hoover Research Fellow Adam White. The moderator is Hoover Research Fellow David Henderson. The panel was recorded on October 23, 2017. I'm going to give the introduction to each speaker before that speaker, so you always have the right name with the, with the talk. Our first speaker today, we're going alphabetical, is John Cochran. He's a senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution, also a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute. His, most of his career was as a professor of finance at the University of Chicago Business School, and he got his PhD in economics at UC Berkeley. <laughs> I first got to know John when he was a junior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors in 82-83, and I was a senior economist there. By the way, Tom Gilligan was there that year, also as a junior economist, and I once took him hang gliding. <laughs> I drove, he hang glided. Uh, he contributes often very good articles to the Wall Street Journal. I learned a lot from co-authoring one with him. He's a fantastic co-author to work with. He has a blog called The Grumpy Economist. I challenge you to hear his talk in the next 18 minutes and conclude that he's a, drunk, a grumpy man. I don't think so. Thank, thanks very much, David. Uh, and those were fun times back when we were young. Uh, so we're doing regulation, and my slice of this is financial regulation. Uh, duh, a vibrant financial system is, is vital for economic growth and prosperity. We should have a vibrant, competitive, and innovative financial system, uh, especially with all the innovation going on in, in tech, communications, and finance. And we don't have it. Uh, like... Dan just told you about health, and Henry will tell you uh, in further detail. A moment of unimaginable technical progress is, is being stymied by the FDA, uh, by, the, uh, by the regulatory process. And so this uh, wave of, of technology that should be coming in and, and underlying real prosperity isn't happening. There's just one tiny instance of that. You know, Chinese and Nigerians have better cell phone payments than we do. Um, and uh, besides a vibrant financial system, a crisis every 10 or 20 years is not so great for growth either. Financial regulation is at a crossroads right now. Uh, after the financial crisis, uh, Dodd, the Dodd-Frank Act, Obamacare's evil twin, um, just threw more regulation at everything that vaguely smelled of finance. Uh, well, it is now time for a reevaluation. And that's going on. Uh, the administration's executive order, things going on in Congress, maybe the Fed. Uh, it is a question now, which way will uh, financial regulation go? Uh, and a genuine question. And, and we've all collectively had time to think hard since the panic of the post-crisis era. Now, uh, how, how did we get here? Uh, in financial regulation, there is a genuine issue, the presence of occasional financial crises. 
We are not just overregulated because people who do it are idiots or socialists or bought off or whatever. It's not that easy. There is a genuine problem. You, you've seen your Mary Poppins when little Michael wants his tuppence back and everybody runs to get their money and the, the bank fails. That, that's a problem. We have financial crises and, and we need to stop financial crises. Uh, now, to, 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 to figure out what to do, it helps to define what the problem is. And, and I actually, thanks to Google, I didn't read the whole thing, but I Googled the whole Dodd-Frank Act. And interestingly, it, it never defines what a crisis or systemic is. Well, we need to do that. And, and it's pretty clear what it is. It's a run. It's this phenomenon where everybody tries to get their money out at once, and, and they can't do it. Now, that insight is important. Just defining what we're after <laughs> gives you a very important insight. What it is not, the, a crisis is not, the failure of specific systemic institutions. A crisis is not the chain of dominoes. A, can't, a fails, A can't pay, pay B, B fails. It's a run where we all run, we all get scared and run to get our money out at once. That's a useful insight also because it tells us what regulators don't have to do. It's not necessary to regulate everything financial to stop a crisis. For example, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, endlessly in the news for its, its nannying troubles and lately for trying to get rid of payday loans. Well, we don't have to fix all that. For one, those of us who don't like its regulation, it, it can sit as a, as a festering sore. To those of you who think it's important, it's fine. But to solve crises, we don't have to do that. We have to stop runs, uh, period. Now, how do you stop a run? Uh, our country made a decision long ago to do it in 1933, where, in 1907 and 1933, uh, we started a policy of lender of last resort uh, by the Federal Reserve and deposit insurance. So banks in trouble, uh, their, their creditors will get bailed out. Now that works, that stops a run. If you are all about to run, you, you leave this wonderful talk and run down to go get your money out of the bank, and you hear, no, the government's going to bail you out. Don't worry about it. You can get back in your seats and enjoy the rest of the talk. Bailing out the creditors does stop a run. But it leads to more problems. If, if you tell a bank uh, and the bank investors that they're going to get bailed out in the event of a run, then they lose their incentive to do any monitoring of the bank's balance sheet. And the bank uh, has now an incentive to issue guaranteed deposits and, and uh, take risks with them. My, my joke version, it's like, uh, giving your, your drunk uncle your credit card and sending him to Las Vegas and saying, I'm good for the debts. Well, that's called an incentive to excessive risk-taking in financial jargon. So what does the government do about that? Well, they add regulation. They send regulators out. They, they send along, you know, your cousin uh, with the uncle to make sure that he follows the rules, you know, no blackjack, only roulette, or, or whatever it is. Uh, and more perniciously, the regulators have to stop competition. If the banks are allowed to try to get customers from each other by offering better interest rates, uh, then the banks will, will do riskier things, and then we'll have to bail them out again. And unfortunately, the banks are good at getting around the rules. So over and over, uh, we've had bigger and bigger crises. Each time, the, the officials in hand seeing a run, once the run starts, the only thing you can do is bail out the creditors to stop the run. And, and uh, I would do it. You make me treasury secretary and a crisis happens. I might say all these things in front of you, but when the time comes, you're going to bail them out because you've got to stop the run. And then make all sorts of promises about you won't do it again, promises you will break 
once they get around it and, and the next crisis happens. So the Dodd-Frank Act was not something special, as Obamacare was not something special. It is the natural progression of a set of ideas. Once you start down this road of we're going to bail out the creditors, regulate the assets of the banks, the Dodd-Frank Act is the next obvious step. Now, uh, what, what's the alternative? And, and it leads to, as Obamacare, single payer, single bank, basically. A government-run financial system is, is where, where it inevitably leads. Now, there's a second approach to think of how do you stop a run. It's, it's that banks use much more equity financing. The problem with a bank is not what they do with their money. It's where they get their money. They get their money from people who can run. If instead banks have to get their money by issuing equity, by, by issuing, uh, d issuing securities that don't allow this run option, then you've solved the financial crisis and it doesn't really matter what, what they do with it. So much, much more equity is the other approach to solving, uh, to solving crises. When you think about it, banks' assets are loans. And bank assets are incredibly safe. Now, loans, there's some danger of loans. People might not pay them back. But compare those assets to like Google's assets. I don't know what Google's latest moonshot is. They're going to do self-driving cars or trucks or rocket ships or I don't know what. But, but that cash flow stream is incredibly risky compared to loans. Why is it that we are putting all this regulatory effort into monitoring the safety of, port of the safest portfolios of assets on Earth? because they're leveraged up to the hilt with run-prone liabilities. The problem with banks is where they get their money. So the alternative vision is lots, lots more capital. Uh, when banks lose money, the value of their investments goes up and down just like stocks. And, and the 2001 stock uh, price bust was unpleasant, but it wasn't a panic. It wasn't a massive recession. Uh, we need to let banks lose money in a painless way, and that would do it. So this is entirely possible. I've, I've written many long articles on how you can run our financial system quite seamlessly with modern technology in a way that doesn't have this run-prone assets. Now, David's only going to give me 18 minutes, so I can't give you the full description. But that is the alternative uh, way of doing things. And we are now at a crossroads. Which way are we going to go? Are we, in essence, going to beef up the firehouse more and more? Or are we going to encourage every house to have its own fire extinguishers so we don't have conflagrations in the first place? So where are we? Uh, under Dodd-Frank, there's this huge, massive rule book. Worse than rules, uh, there's this lovely word supervision rather than regulation of what the bank Fed does. The Fed tells banks what's right now there's 150 employees in each big bank signing off on every big deal. Uh, the big banks, initially unhappy with Dodd-Frank, have now uh, uh, become happy with it. Jamie Dimon gave a very interesting speech on this. They've built their, their $100 million compliance departments, and they've discovered it's a nifty barrier to entry. Nobody can come in and, and start a new bank bank these days. In fact, notice the perversity of regulation. We have many carve-outs that small banks don't have to do a lot of the regulations. That sounds nice, but that means don't get big. Don't challenge the big guys, or else you have this regulatory barrier. So we have, we, we have an uncompetitive uh, banking system, and they have, as usual, grown happy with the regulations. At the Fed, uh, Janet Yellen gave a very interesting speech at Jackson Hole, pretty much announcing her happiness with the Dodd-Frank structure. Uh, there'll be some minor tweaking, um, uh, you know, as she mentioned, the Volcker rule, but, but basically things, things are fine. So one big issue is, is 
are whether we're going to change or, or continue the next structure is what goes on with the Fed. Uh, I know the Hoover team, John Taylor and, and Kevin Warsh, are quite suspicious of this regulatory uh, structure and more likely to take us in the other direction. More worryingly, uh, I, I hang out with the Fed staff and the staff at international institutions, uh, the, the Bank of England, the Bank of International Settlements, the European Central Bank, the academic community, people who write papers that will put you to sleep instantly on financial regulation. One of our troubles is, you know, health regulation, you listen to Henry, you, you listen to, uh, you listen to um, uh, uh, Scott Atlas and, and, uh, and the, health, we kind of get it, it's fun. Financial regulation, mark-to-market standards, off we go to sleep. But anyway, I, I'm the kind of nut. I do this stuff. Um, what are they talking about? The, the future is integrating monetary policy and regulation. Our great leaders are going to spot bubbles, and they're going to do something about it next time. Our leaders are going to buy widely. Uh, central banks, the J Bank of Japan is buying corporate bonds. The European Central Bank is buying corporate bonds. They're buying stocks. Uh, the Chinese Central Bank is, you know, they, they don't care. They're, they're in there telling the stock market what to do. So we're going to, and, and central banks, they want to use their regulatory tools, their tools to tell banks how much uh, leverage to take to try to guide the macroeconomy. Oh, is real estate too high? Well, we'll force the banks to lower their leverage ratio. Mer merging, re merging regulatory and monetary policy goals, you end up just being the great director of, of the financial system. So far from stopping runs, to stopping banks from failing, to stopping banks from ever losing any money, now we're gonna stop asset prices from ever falling. That's the macro prudential project. And these ideas do affect things. That's the point of Hoover, is <laughs> we, we are about the world of ideas surrounding policy. And these ideas are completely taken for granted in, in policy circles. What the central bank can affect, it should control. Regulatory power should be integrated with policy objectives. And now, now the direction of the financial system. Yet none of this will stop the next crisis. Our leaders are going to be no more clairvoyant than the next set of leaders. The essence of a run is it's unpredictable. If you know there's going to be a run on Monday, you go run on Friday. It cannot be predicted by people in the economy. It cannot be predicted by, by no matter how smart the central bankers. It's not a criticism of them to say they won't see it coming. They can't see it coming. That's how it works. The resolution authority, if there's ever any, any, uh, any whiff of it happening, will spark a run. Uh, I mean, imagine you're a creditor and you know, oh, over the weekend, the Treasury Secretary is going to hand out billions of dollars. We don't know to who. You better have his cell phone number handy. Uh, I suggest you go get your money right now. Uh, all right. I might actually make it, which is unheard of. Uh, uh, um, and, and where was I? I was ranting and raving about something. Uh, <laughs> the next crisis will... will there will be a big bailout, because you have to. Once the run starts, the only thing to do, everybody's screaming, I'm systemic, without me, the world ends. Uh, and the worry is, each one is bigger. Sooner or later, our government runs out of its ability to borrow an enormous ton of money and, and bailing everyone out. Then the financial crisis becomes a sovereign debt crisis, and heaven knows what happens later. Now, uh, so much for the uh, evil empire. How is the rebellion doing? Um, there are, th this, th that's not, it's not necessary, that's where we'll go. Um, the administration issued an executive order 
And the executive order, you read it, you can read it. If I, if I read it after my coffee, I feel great. If I read it at night when I'm tired, I feel depressed. It either says go in the direction of less regulation, lots of capital, or it says um, keep the rules that are, are, are protecting the big banks, roll back capital standards, risk on, profits up, and we'll call you as soon as we need a bailout. Uh, not clear which way it's going to go, but at least it's possible it goes the way I hope for it. Um, Many regulators uh, are getting it. Um, uh, the uh, Financial Choice Act is an example. Um, our Jeb Henserling is spearheading it. Uh, our own John Taylor, I know, is a, a quiet voice behind the scenes getting this going. Uh, it offers something very clever. We always think we have to fix the big banks. It says, no, you know, let the dinosaurs live. But, but the one thing that's missing in all financial regulation is the on-ramp. It's not how do we fix these things we've got, but where would we like to go in the future and allow it to happen? How could the weeds grow and give us something good? What it offers is if you have lots of capital, then we'll exempt you from a bunch of regulations. That doesn't mean you have to, if, if you don't want the capital, fine, you can operate as a big regulated bank, but it allows the on-ramp to the fintech, to the, to the creative uh, the, the creative new uh, businesses that could fund themselves in a safe equity way and, and give us that financial um, uh, system we want. So, so um, and in a bigger sense, um, the realization that lots and lots of capital is eminently possible, that it will not stop the economy, that this is the way to stop financial crises is taking over. That idea has really gained a lot of uh, traction in the last years, and, and ideas matter. So in sum, with modern technology, we can have an efficient, nimble, competitive, largely deregulated financial system and no more crises. The question is, will our regulators allow that to happen? And I hope the answer is yes, and, and though it'll take a lot of, of, of uh, pressure to do it. A larger thought on regulation? Yes, and I'm going to do it in one minute. Uh, America is extraordinarily lucky at our moment of great apparent national crisis. Uh, compare us to, to Rome when its empire was falling. We don't have plagues. We don't have people coming in on horseback destroying everything. <laughs> uh, we live in a benign, a fairly benign, at least economic environment. Our, our international challenges are, are strong, but there's not, there's not Nazis running into Poland. Um, we have this tremendous reservoir of uh, innovation, financial, communications, medical innovation. If we are not growing like crazy, it is entirely a self-inflicted wound. Let us hope that that doesn't happen to us. On the other hand, for 800 years um, or more, actually back to the Romans, regulation has large, the point of regulation, it has a, um, it, it says it's to protect the, uh, to the people, but in fact what it does is it protects the interests of politically powerful uh, producers. And it's, it, its action is to stop competition, to stop innovation, to preserve the old way, to stop economic growth. So I'm an economist, I, I kind of know the economic answers. The question I will hope our political scientists will answer for us is how can we form the political system from this 800-year-old problem 
and allow, um, allow the weeds to grow, uh, allow competition and innovation to displace politically popular incumbents who use uh, regulation to stop, stop that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, John. Our next speaker is Henry Miller. Uh, Henry is both, uh, is, is an MD, and he is the Robert Wesson Fellow in Scientific Philosophy and Public Policy here at Hoover. He studies science and technology, uh, pharmaceutical development, genetic engineering, and agriculture. I don't know if any of you saw the ads he did on TV a few years ago when he opposed all these genetic labeling laws. I was so proud to see my colleague say it so well. I gather he lost some friends over it but he gained an even bigger friendship with me. <laughs> um, Henry worked at the US FDA for many years, and in fact, he was the medical reviewer, the head of the team for the first genetically engineered drugs to be evaluated by the FDA, and they, it was uh, human insulin, and they took five months rather than the usual 31 months, and with that we can thank Henry for. Probably he saved, helped save a number of lives. Henry's written in many, many publications. He and I have been co-authors a few times, and I've always enjoyed that and learned from it. So please welcome Henry Miller, MD. Thanks, David. Thank you very much. Uh, as David said, um, my research focuses on science, technology, uh, and their applications and particularly their regulation, often over-regulation, uh, by the federal government. Um, I'm most concerned with a gatekeeper agency, so-called, because their approval is necessary before these products can be tested, uh, let alone commercialized. And uh, I could throw some numbers at you that are impressive about the uh, scope and cost of this federal regulation. So uh, FDA, for example, regulates consumer products that, are, that account for 20 cents of every consumer dollar, more than a trillion dollars annually. Uh, and EPA, uh, EPA's regulation is such that compliance with its regulations costs more than a trillion dollars annually. But these numbers are kind of cold and impersonal. So I'd like to take you through quickly three examples in the biotechnology sector of how dysfunctional regulation or un, uh, excessive or misguided regulation has really eliminated entire once promising sectors of biotechnology. And by biotech, I mean modern genetic engineering techniques, sometimes called uh, uh, genetic modification, which gives rise to GMOs, genetically modified organisms, a term that uh, I dislike that we can discuss the reasons for later. Uh, so it's no surprise that uh, excessive or uncertain regulation leads to less research and development uh, and fewer products. And uh, it's interesting to compare the regulation of products like semiconductors uh, to biotech. A company like uh, Intel or Cypress Semiconductor comes up with a new chip. Uh, companies like uh, Samsung or Apple put it into a device, and if it seems to work well, they put it on the market and it's out there. Uh, for biotech, the, the process is very different. 
Uh, often there are years, sometimes decades, of testing required by the government before these products uh, can be approved. And it's a very, very expensive as well as lengthy process. So for example, a new variety of genetically engineered plant uh, requires years and on average $136 million to bring to market. For uh, a pesticide, the cost is uh, often double that. And for a, a drug, genetically engineered or not, the process now requires 10 to 12 years on average and a whopping $2.55 billion, billion to bring to market. So the, the three examples I'm going to discuss with you today are the so-called ice minus bacteria, which is used to prevent frost damage to crops, uh, the frankenfish, a genetically engineered, faster-growing salmon, Atlantic salmon, uh, that uh, decreases the, uh, the cost of uh, fish farming, and genetically engineered mosquitoes, which uh, are used for mosquito control. Uh, the, the ice minus bacteria uh, is a very ingenious product. It was developed about 30 years ago in a laboratory at Berkeley and by uh, a company that, uh, that uh, exploited the fact that, um, that uh, frost damage to crops is promoted by bacteria that exist normally on the leaves and uh, flowers and fruits and stems of uh, farmed uh, plants. And uh, this is a bacterium called Pseudomonas syringae, and it contains uh, what's called an ice nucleation protein, which serves as a nidus or a, a beginning point for frost damage to plants. So it, it serves as a uh, focus, a beginning for ice crystals that cause the damage. And so uh, the um, scientists reason that if you could displace those uh, uh, bacteria that exist in the wild, uh, you might be able to uh, uh, prevent frost damage except at a, a somewhat lower temperature. And uh, so they created mutants of this pseudomonas that lacked the gene for the ice nucleation protein. And because it didn't produce it, they called it ice minus. Uh, and the... Uh, in its uh, infinite wisdom, EPA considered this uh, mute, what in effect is a mutant of a normal bacterium, uh, as, uh, to be a pesticide. Because the definition in their statute is that uh, pesticides uh, are products that are intended for preventing, destroying, repelling, or mitigating any pest or intended use uh, for use as a plant regulator, defoliant, or desiccant. And so they reasoned that the ice plus uh, bacterium, which occurs naturally, is a pest since it promotes frost damage. And anything to mitigate it, such as this ice minus mutant, uh, is a pesticide. Uh, now, the problem is that registering a pesticide requires about 11 years and an expenditure on average of about $286 million. And for a product that has relatively uh, limited utility such as this. Although frost damage is a, uh, a problem annually in the U.S. Southeast and occasionally in California, 
It simply was not cost effective uh, to develop that product. And here's the, uh, the, the, the kicker. Uh, the ice plus bacteria, the Pseudomonas syringae that's found in nature, is used in ice making at snow resorts. So if you've been to a snow resort and near a machine that's making snow, you've been exposed to the wild type uh, bacteria in very large amounts. And yet EPA was going to regulate this through a very burdensome and lengthy uh, process as a pesticide. The, uh, the second example, and, and because of, of that, although the ice minus organism did well in field trials, which were conducted in the East Bay in Brentwood uh, on strawberries and potatoes, it was never commercialized, again, because of that onerous uh, testing procedure and the expense. The, uh, the second example I want to give you is the, the frankenfish, the uh, Atlantic salmon that uh, has a, uh, that differs from uh, the wild organic, uh, the wild Atlantic salmon in only one respect. It has a, a growth hormone gene uh, from the Chinook salmon introduced that causes it to grow faster. And it also uh, includes a regulatory sequence that does not code for anything. It just keeps that Chinook salmon growth hormone gene turned on constantly. Uh, and it grows about 40% faster than the uh, wild uh, organic, uh, the Atlantic salmon that's farmed. It consumes about 25% less food. Uh, the uh, salmon that are farmed are all sterile females, and it's farmed inland, so there's no possibility of the, uh, the salmon escaping into the ocean. And I should say that the, uh, the, the salmon, when it's harvested, is totally indistinguishable from uh, the uh, Atlantic salmon that is farmed normally. Uh, it's indistinguishable in uh, taste, nutritional value, appearance, and even in the final size of the fish. Although uh, here you can see these, these fish, these are two salmon. The one on the bottom is a, a, a natural, uh, unengineered salmon. The one above is the genetically engineered one. These are the same age. Uh, at full maturity, the, uh, the one on the bottom uh, will, uh, will catch up, and they'll be the same size at maturity but you can, uh, you can see why it would be a tremendous advantage uh, to have this increase in growth rate. You, uh, you use less food, less time, uh, and less energy involved in the farming. So the, um, the regulatory timeline for this fish, uh, which was kept treading water by FDA for a very long time, is that in the mid-1990s, the uh, company called Aqua Bounty submitted a dossier to FDA, which had not decided yet how it was going to regulate this product. Uh, the FDA didn't decide on a regulatory pathway until 2009, when it decided that it was going to regulate this as though it was a veterinary drug, the rationale being that if you introduce new DNA, that's sort of analogous to uh, injecting growth hormone into uh, the animal, and uh, therefore it was a veterinary drug, and the animal then therefore would be regulated 
as a veterinary drug because the DNA, of course, was incorporated into its genome. Uh, the FDA was reviewing this for, for some three years, and then the review was hijacked by the Obama administration, uh, partly for, uh, uh, for political reasons, because there were, uh, there were critical states uh, to his reelection where genetic engineering was just not popular. Uh, finally, in 2015, FDA decided that the uh, salmon was safe to eat and could be marketed, uh, but because of uh, riders that were attached to congressional spending bills by Senator Murkowski, who, was, who thought she was protecting the uh, Alaska salmon industry, this product still has not been marketed uh, in the U.S., although it's going gangbusters in Canada, where uh, People are buying uh, all that the company uh, can produce. Now, for those of you who are entrepreneurs, you'll appreciate that uh, a product that has a 20-plus year uh, development time uh, and a, a product that is going to be low margin at best is not a great business model. And uh, so the uh, entire biotech sector of genetically engineered animals has, a, has suffered as a result of this and is pretty moribund. Now, one uh, area that is uh, not moribund and that is, uh, but is still not doing very well, uh, has to do with mosquito control. And uh, this product is an extremely elegant one, an innovative one scientifically. Um, it's, the, uh, it's an engineered strain of uh, the mosquito Aedes aegypti, which carries a number of viruses, transmits a number of viral, viral diseases in humans, including Zika, yellow fever, uh, dengue fever, and uh, an odd one called chikungunya. And the um, uh, company that produces this, that created this, introduced what's called a conditional lethal mutation. And what that means is that it, it contains uh, a segment of DNA, a, mu a mutation, that's lethal except when the mosquito is grown with a certain supplement to its growth medium. And that supplement just happens to be the antibiotic tetracycline. So in the presence of tetracycline, it does fine in the laboratory, it does fine in the manufacturing facility, but it, when it's released into the environment, uh, it survives only long enough to mate. It passes on that defective DNA to its progeny. The progeny die because there's no tetracycline present, and the parents die as well. And in field trials in a number of countries, uh, mainly in the developing world, this has been found to be very effective. It reduces the level of mosquitoes by 90% or more. And it's uh, approved for commercial use in Brazil. Um, but uh, again, FDA regulates these mosquitoes as though they were a veterinary drug. Uh, FDA's review of this extended for uh, five years. They approved a single field trial. And here's the kicker. Uh, FDA could not have approved the product for marketing anyway, because its statute says that a veterinary drug has to be safe and effective for the animal, and this is this is this is DNA that kills the progeny and the parent, 
And so uh, FDA would not have withstood challenges from, uh, en from environmental anti-genetic engineering activists, uh, even had it been tested and approved. The uh, outcome of this was FDA finally ceded jurisdiction to EPA as of uh, a month ago. And a part of that apparently was in response to a, an article in the Wall Street Journal that a, a co-author and I wrote last year pointing out the inconsistency in FDA's jurisdiction over this product. So in conclusion, uh, any of these sectors of biotech could have been the next big thing for the biotech industry and for US science and technology. Uh, all three are relatively moribund, although there are some applications that are interesting that are being produced in laboratories. And uh, I would leave you with the, um, the thought, of the uh, statement of Ronald Reagan's, that if you want less of something, tax it. And regulation imposes a huge, uh, burdensome, and often inappropriate tax on science and technology. Uh, hence the need for regulatory reform. Thank you very much. Thank you, Henry. Um, somehow during that session, I kind of got hungry. Um, and by the way, I'm from Canada originally, and I'm now looking forward more to going back there. Our final speaker today is Adam J. White. He's a research fellow with the Hoover Institution. He's based at the one in Washington. He's director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, where he teaches administrative law. He writes a lot about the administrative state, the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and regulatory policy. Uh, he's on the executive committee of the Federalist Society's administrative law practice group. He, uh, was, uh, he graduated from University of Iowa and Harvard Law School, and he clerked for one of my favorite judges, Judge David Sintel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Please welcome Adam White. Thank you very much. This might seem an odd moment to criticize overregulation of energy and the environment. After all, we live in a moment of unprecedented good fortune with sudden abundant energy supplies. Thanks primarily to world-changing innovations in oil and gas production, the United States finds itself in a position that would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. This moment was captured best, as usual, by Secretary Schultz, who observed three years ago that, quote, we are on the brink of a golden age in the field of energy there's a far greater mass of first-class science and engineering being applied to energy now than ever before in the United States or elsewhere. He added, game-changing energy innovations are the engine toward a bright future. And we've already enjoyed the fruits of these astonishing developments. America's oil production has nearly doubled. 10 years ago, we produced about 5,000 barrels of crude oil per day. In 2016, the production was closer to 9,000 barrels. Got my units off on that. It's nearly doubled. And America's natural gas production has increased nearly 50% in the same time. 10 years ago, our natural gas production was 20 trillion cubic feet. In 2016, it was over 28 trillion cubic feet. 
Moreover, as we've grown more productive, we've also become cleaner and more energy efficient, especially in our greenhouse gas emissions. In 2016, our energy-related greenhouse gas emissions were about 14% lower than their 2007 level. And finally, our new energy abundance will profoundly affect our nation's economic and strategic prospects. According to the United States Energy Information Administration, which is the source of all the statistics I'm citing today, the United States could become a net energy exporter in the next decade, around the year 2026. Again, all this unthinkable 20 years ago. So we have much to be grateful for right now. But at the same time, we must be careful not to allow this new wealth and abundance to momentarily avert our attention from the dangers of overregulation, lest we allow excessive or ill-conceived regulations to prevent the next energy revolution. And that's precisely the danger we face. Let me offer three brief examples. First, the Clean Power Plan, which is the EPA's euphemism for its unprecedented assertion of regulatory power over the national and, energy state, uh, national and state energy policy. By the EPA's own estimates, the costs of this program would, would reach five to eight billion dollars annually by 2030. And even those estimates, which critics have shown to be optimistically understated, are merely the compliance costs. They don't begin to cover the regulatory program's impacts on the economy at large by making energy more expensive. We're lucky that the Supreme Court blocked the EPA from implementing this program and that the EPA's new leadership has begun to reconsider this program. My second example, the EPA's recent clean water rule, another euphemism, attempted to assert unprecedented regulatory power over the use, development, and enjoyment of private lands. It would have imposed immense burdens on economic development in terms of cost and regulatory uncertainty. Here, too, we're lucky that the courts blocked the EPA from implementing this rule and that the new EPA leadership is beginning to reconsider it. My third example, our energy boom of the last decade occurred despite myriad efforts by regulators to deter or block energy production and industrial development, uh, offshore or on federal lands or even on private lands. The regulators had several regular, regulatory tools at their disposal to accomplish this including the National Environmental Policy Act and other laws that, though well-intentioned by Congress, have been implemented by regulators and judges in ways that create an utter quagmire for infrastructure development. Now, since the last presidential election, we've seen a flurry of, a flurry of efforts to mitigate these symptoms of the modern administrative state. President Trump issued executive orders directing agencies to reconsider and re reform these federal regulatory programs and to accelerate the process for getting new infrastructure projects approved. Agencies are implementing these orders through their own regulatory processes, and I welcome those efforts. But I would urge you that this approach illustrates not just the regulatory problems that we currently face, but also the limits of our, pres of our present approach to solving these problems. For if a new administration's only solution is to repeal or reform prior regulations, then we're merely delaying the problem until the next administration reverses course once again. Without a plan for long-lasting reform through legislative change, any short-term benefits from the current deregulatory effort will be short-lived. We need to take the longer view. 
And so I pose the question as this. How should our nation reform and modernize its regulation of energy and the environment in order to promote economic growth, individual liberty, and geopolitical strength while always remaining, remaining faithful stewards of the land, water, and air with which we've all been blessed? By phrasing the question so bluntly, I don't mean to imply that there are simple answers. The Hoover Institution's Schultz-Stevenson Energy Policy Task Force has been grappling with these issues for years. And the reports produced by Secretary Schultz and Ambassador Stevenson and their colleagues reflect the complex technical decisions and value judgments that must be made to achieve a cleaner, wealthier, and stronger future. I can't begin to do justice to all of their work, so let me sketch out a few general thoughts for reform. And let me begin with a basic observation. The cleaner societies tend to be the wealthier ones. And they're not wealthier because they're cleaner. Rather, they're cleaner because they're wealthier. From that observation, then, I'd suggest that our goal in environmental regulation should be to facilitate the economic growth and technological innovation that will, in the long run, promote productive efficiency and environmental stewardship. The solution is not to abolish environmental regulation altogether, but to substantially reform and modernize it in order to ensure that regulation doesn't become overregulation, that it's tailored to carefully minimize needless economic harm. Unfortunately, the EPA has fallen far short of that goal. Recent regulators have conjured immense regulatory programs based on statutes that Congress wrote decades ago, statutes which neither give meaningful direction to the agencies nor place meaningful limits on the agencies. We see this first and foremost in the Clean Air Act, which the EPA invokes as the basis for its immense regulatory programs regarding greenhouse gas emissions, but also in other well-intentioned statutes like the Clean Water Act. Congress needs to reform those laws in light of modern circumstances to give regulators real direction and limitation. If our nation chooses to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, for example, then Congress should make that choice. And if Congress chooses to regulate, then it should require the EPA to, require, to rely, whenever possible, on market-based mechanisms, like pricing the external costs of carbon with a refundable tax, instead of using the blunt tool of command and control regulation to achieve its aims. Next, in order to promote the development of modern infrastructure, Congress needs to streamline the process for granting state and federal approvals to these projects. We need to promote transparency and regulatory certainty and remove opportunities for bureaucratic gamesmanship. To that end, Congress should create rules and incentives to drive regulators to review projects in good faith under much more certain deadlines. We need this not just for new pipelines and a modern power grid, but also for the nuclear power plants that could do so much to promote clean, affordable power. And on that point, I'd urge you all to read a new report by my colleagues Jeremy Carl and David Fetter titled, Keeping the Lights On at America's Nuclear Power Plants. Finally, we need to improve the process by which our government develops data. Federal regulators have done everything possible to undermine their own credibility in researching the facts of climate change. Even if they're ultimately correct that human activity is exacerbating the problem of global climate change, the regulators have still left the American public with far too little reason to ever trust their judgment. We must do better. Our nation's history is marked by examples of the government investing substantial resources in the basic work of fact-finding. 
from expeditions like Lewis and Clark in 1804 to the founding of the U.S. Geological Survey in 1879 and the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 1884, much more recently, the creation of the Energy Information Administration for, uh, during the 1970s oil crisis 40, 40 years ago. If the public is going to deliberate seriously on the question of climate change and these other issues at hand, then we need a credible institution capable of researching and evaluating the facts upon which the public, through Congress, will make major policy decisions. And I don't mean that factual development is the exclusive jurisdiction of government. What I do mean is to take the EIA, for example, the Energy Information Administration. In the midst of the oil crisis, the government created an administrative body capable of researching and projecting energy information going forward. Projections which might be wrong, might be right, but at least are a credible first step in any conversation about policy. Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously said, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. And I think the same can be said of modern debates over energy and environmental policy in which both sides seem to disagree fundamentally over the basic factual issues at hand. And if we're ever gonna see real reform in one way or another, we need a much more credible body of facts upon which to begin our debates. Now let me conclude by emphasizing that what's at stake is not just a few more cubic feet of natural gas per day or reducing pollution by one or two parts per million. Rather, to echo Russ Roberts and Peter Robinson from this morning, what's at stake is the nation's very character, culture, and future. Americans have built great things before, from the Hoover Dam and the interstate highways to deep water offshore drilling and high-tech heartland agriculture. These all required optimism and a spirit of innovation and one of the modern administrative state's most pernicious effects is that it corrodes our society's belief that risks are worth taking and that a better future can be attained through individual ingenuity and initiative. So we need to restore a spirit of optimism and innovation for all the human endeavors that build our nation, power our livelihoods, and feed our people. Thank you. You were under budget, that's great. Am I under time? You're under time. I'll save it for a So Adam was way under time. I might give him longer to answer questions. So I'm gonna call on various people, but first I wanna just use my prerogative as, as chair to ask Henry a question. You kind of laid out the problems. If you could have one regulatory reform to handle that, what would it be? Well, it would be uh, much more aggressive, effective oversight by Congress. And, and there's a, an important mechanism that already exists that's underused, and it's called the Holman Rule. It permits any member of Congress to attach to a, a spending bill uh, a sanction against an individual federal program or individual, individual official. And so the, the officials who are involved in some of, the, uh, uh, some of the debacles that I described would be prime candidates for that. It would be the people who crafted the uh, animal genetic engineering rule. It would be the people who delayed the review of the, uh, the genetically engineered uh, salmon for 20 years. It would be the people who didn't understand that their own statute wouldn't permit them to approve the engineered uh, Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. They would be prime candidates, and they can be. They can have their 
The Congress can reduce their pay by half. Uh, it can eliminate entire programs at will. The Holman Rule. Thank you. And so now I'd like to call on people in the audience. I'm going to try to keep track of you. Uh, so I've got this gentleman here first, that gentleman at the back by Lorreen second. There was a lot of discussion on uh, banks and bank regulation. And I was surprised, given we're at Hoover, that the marketplace wasn't mentioned as an element in this process. The problem that has occurred is the fact that since the Fed uh, was formed, the Fed has bailed out every bank and every creditor. We have not tested a system of the marketplace. And in my opinion, until we do that, until creditors uh, are sure that they are going to, uh, to pay for a failure, we are never going to solve the problem uh, by equity or any other means. And I would suggest to you that uh, uh, this last uh, crisis, uh, the, the failure was we bailed out uh, uh, the first one, uh, Bear Stearns, the smallest one, the one that wasn't a, even a commercial bank. And we know that it would have worked if we would have let them fail because uh, JP Morgan and the Fed bought all their assets and they made money on those assets. And we also know, or at least it's, it's quite well known in the industry, that if we would not have bailed out Bear Stearns, uh, then uh, indeed the rest of the banks would have been sold, and, and particularly the next one uh, in order, uh, Lehman. He had four offers, and it's quite possible it would have stopped there. So I think we have to be sure that the marketplace the people who are providing capital to the banks are at risk of losing their money, so the leverage is reduced. And until that happens, equity is not going to solve our problem. And in my opinion, regulations are not going to solve our problem. Why wasn't the marketplace put in your uh, speech? Uh, well, Clearly, this is directed to John. <laughs> yeah, because David was waving at me. I, I agree entirely. Um, uh, right. Uh, Bear Stearns, if they had let Bear Stearns go, everybody else would have gotten the message, oh, uh, party over. Uh, Lehman uh, refused many offers to infuse capital, but they, they, they didn't want the dilution. They didn't want to admit that they were going to lose some money. Back in the, in the good old days, uh, before um, deposit insurance, Fed, and so forth, if you wanted to run a bank, uh, you had to have capital. 40% capital was common. Why? Because no one would lend you money unless you got 40% of your own skin in the game first. Uh, the, the modern era of 2% of capital is just shockingly low, and, and, and you're, you're considered a, a right-wing lunatic if you say 4% might be a better idea. Uh, that's a very unusual, and it's entirely a result of, of the bailout regime. Uh, I agree with you, and um, I, I just want to go... I, I'm not proposing massive... Or I'm proposing pretty massive deregulation, um, the vision of much more capital, much more investors' money at stake is, is exactly, I think, what we agree on. And the first, I don't want to start adding regulations. Let's start by getting rid of them. We subsidize debt uh, by telling everyone we're going to bail you out. We subsidize it. Now, it is true. I also try to be practical. Um, our, our officials will bail out when they get into trouble. And if there's more fire extinguishers in each house, there's less chance of calling the firehouse in the first place. But, but we, we're 99% in agreement here. 
So the person by Lorene, and I would just ask you, it was obvious in your case, sir, but please tell who you're directing the question to, and it can be to everyone. Uh, I'm uh, directing my question to uh, um, Adam and to John uh, and, and to whomever. But um, in the spring of, uh, in the uh, Hoover Digest, there was an article by one of your associates, uh, Michael Fermisan, I think is the man's name, and he wrote, uh, the inconvenient math of uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if uh, either one or both of you might comment and, and expand on that. Well, I'll admit, and it's embarrassing to say as somebody who focuses on energy policy, that I yet don't have a conclusion on, on, on climate change. I, I, I tend to think it's in some ways beside the point. Um, like I said, from the very beginning, the scholars that have been, and the regulators have been pushing this theory of anthropogenetic, anthropogenetic climate change uh, have conducted themselves in a way of stripped themselves of any credibility. And I find it very hard to believe. Um, and I, I, I find their inability to admit the, the failure of their models to actually predict what's happened in recent years to strip themselves any further of credibility. At the same time, um, at the same time with my, my view of stewardship of the environment, I'd say I tend to err on the side of, of environmental protection in the absence of, 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 of uh, strong information one way or the other. My, my default instinct is we ought to take care to protect the air, um, but not at totally open-ended cost. Right? One of the problems of the current, the, the current suite of greenhouse gas regulations is that it's incomprehensibly expensive, and it centralizes power over so many aspects of national policy, state policy involving energy, manufacturing, land use, concentrate so much of it inside of the EPA at such great cost to society that this is one of those occasions where I, I, I think that we have a duty not to take this regulatory action until we actually have real reason to believe uh, that the science is what they say it is. Could I, let, uh, let me add a... Uh, oh, yeah. John and I did an article. Are you going to talk about it? Yeah, yeah let, unless yeah, you want to. <laughs> so, so David and I wrote a little bit on this issue. And um, I think it's a mistake to spend all of our time arguing about other climate models right, other climate models wrong. We've been led into that. And then uh, as if, if the climate models are right, then we got to let the, the whole left-wing apparatus go and run our... You know, then we got to freeze in the dark and... and uh, and, 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 and that sort of thing. That is, that, once you admit that premise, you've lost the game. In fact, as we look at it, so the climate models are very uncertain. And any economist who's seen the history of large-scale computer models <laughs> knows just how uncertain they are. But the economic models are worse. Uh, the uncertainty about the temperature, the global temperature, eh, who knows what's going to happen. The uncertainty about the economic impact of that global temperature, here we're just into totally made up numbers. And so what David and I argue is, look, let, let's focus our attention on that one. Give them two, two degrees in the next century. Let's talk about how much economic damage is that going to have. Where is the economic damage? If you're worried, economic damage. Houston may have to rebuild its sewers. Miami might have to build some dikes. Okay, that's some cost. How much do you want to hobble the economy today to save those costs? If you think you want to save the cost of Miami building, is it better if hurricanes are going to damage Miami? You know, the, the whole climate change thing is a little more uncertain too. But if you're worried about hurricane damage in Miami, 
is the cost-effective way to do it to build stronger houses in Miami, or maybe to rebuild Miami on higher ground? Or is the cost-effective way to do it to build a high-speed train from Fresno to Bakersfield? <laughs> uh, you know, now let, let's, uh, let's, let's, let, we got, we need to have a more open negotiation here. The high-speed train costs $65 billion. It'll lower global temperature, 0.00001 degree. That'll save you X amount of money. So a little cost-benefit analysis on this and focus the argument on the economic effects rather than the climate. Just don't give in on the notion. If it's proved true, then they get to ram it down our throats. Uh, I think that's, a, that's a, a better way to do it. And last point, we also have to have a negotiation. If we're gonna do something, even if it's not the right thing to do, at least let's do it right. Let's do it at minimum damage to the economy. So if we're going to do something about climate change, which they may come back like Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana in 10 years and say, <laughs> never mind, you know, sort of like the way they used to tell us to, to, to eat more carbs and less fat. Never mind, science changed. Okay, let's do the least damage in the meantime. So uh, a, a swap of a, a uniform carbon tax with a, you know, the refundable carbon tax that, that achieves what they say they want in the least damaging possible way. Even if it was pointless, at least you haven't done as much damage. Did I cover our points well enough? There? Yeah, I want to add two, and then I want to let Henry come in. Uh, you did it very well. Thanks. The other point we made in the article is you have decades. You have lots of time to do this. And finally, I don't, I don't think we made this point. We had a word limit. But William Nordhaus is thought of as the guru. He's a Yale professor, economist, on this. And, and the sweet spot actually is about two more degrees when you look at the effect on the growing season and so on. And so we've got room for there actually to be improvement in the economy due to global warming. Henry. Uh, John made a, a very important point that deserves some elaboration. And that's the need for cost-effective regulation. And the reason is not simply that it's the right, smart thing to do. It's that uh, there's a direct relationship between health and wealth. And uh, scholars have found that when you deprive a community or a society of material resources, of income, so the so-called income effect, you actually kill people. Yeah. And uh, John Graham, who uh, used to head the regulatory side of OMB, referred to this as statistical murder, and it genuinely is. And scholars have found that for every deprivation of about $10 million, that causes an excess death. And so, in, in my example, if, we, uh, if, if a regulatory agency regulates that ice minus bacterium uh, as a pesticide and, and causes compliance costs of $286 million, that translate to two, translates to 286 deaths, roughly, without any compensatory benefit. 29 and, deaths. 28.6 deaths. 28 points. Yeah, right, right, thank, right. thank you, David. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, and so uh, uh, the, the, we, we see that it, it's not just uh, an abstract uh, thought. It's a, it's a very real imperative uh, to make regulation cost effective. Could, could I have just two cents? Or sure, sure. I don't know if you guys read the Wall Street Journal on, on India's river problem uh, this, this week. And they have a great article on... The rivers in India are a complete disaster. People are dying of dysentery. They're dying, that air pollution in China, people are dying of emphysema. 
Uh, the idea that climate change is our number one environmental problem is a very rich white privilege idea. <laughs> Most people in the world have huge environmental problems, and those environmental problems are dirty water, uh, mosquitoes, uh, mosquito-borne diseases. If you think about the things that might, might actually end civilization, it's pandemics, it's nuclear war, climate change is far down the list. And I do think much as I, my first comments were how we have to reach out and try to understand, there's kind of a culture war going on here where, you know, if you just say anything other than the line, you're a denier, you're evil, and so forth. I don't know if, if, if that willingness to negotiate is actually there. But part of the costs and benefits are not just economic costs and benefits. It's we're not using our environmental budget to help what people really need, to help what animals really need. All the elephants are gonna get shot long before that climate change is gonna come get them. It's really an environmental tragedy to spend all our effort on this stuff. About, eight or, about every eight or 10 days, our newspaper of preference, the Wall Street Journal, will have a small editorial that uh, calls for the head of Richard Cordry. Now, this question is for each of the four of you. Because the journal keeps demanding his head, Donald Trust does not act. What's holding this back? Okay, I, I, I know the case. I have no idea. So I'm going to defer to three other people. Uh, you know the case, right, John? The uh, consumer finance. I, I know the finance. case, but, but um, so I, I can tell you about economic policy. What's going inside the uh, administration right now and what they're choosing to do and tweet about and what they're not. Uh, Kevin, I don't have any insight. Well, Adam, you're, you're, you live in D.C. What's yeah, going you, on? Yeah. Well, before I joined the Hoover Institution, and I'm, I'm, I'm now a recovering lawyer. I used to be a addicted lawyer. And, I, um, <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm proud to say I, I helped file the first constitutional challenge to Richard Cordray's appointment. Um, and in fact, to the structure of the CFPB itself. That lawsuit is still pending. Um, in the meantime, it was leapfrogged by another lawsuit. Uh, we filed, I was still practicing at the time, we filed the constitutional brief against Cordray's appointment and the CFPB structure, and we won in the DC Circuit, and the case is still pending. Um, I'm, I'm infuriated by the continued um, presence of Richard Cordray as, an, as a federal regulator. And it's not just because his appointment was unconstitutional. Under the statute itself, under Dodd-Frank itself, he is well, President Trump would be well within his rights to fire Richard Cordray. The statutory standard is, is whether the CFPB director has, has exhibited malfeasance, neglect of duty, or inefficiency. And he satisfied all three of those standards, whether it's his evasion of congressional oversight or his ridiculous, preposterous overspending, all these things. He's well, it's, it's well time for him to be fired. Um, I think in the end, his continued um, presence at the CFPB reflects nothing more than a political calculus by the White House that the fight would not be worth it. And the last thing they want to do is put wind in the sails of Cordray's next political campaign. And I understand that political judgment. Um, but for, in, in light of the, you know, the community bank that, we rep, that I represented when I was a lawyer, a West Texas community bank that was the first to put its head above the waterline and actually file a public lawsuit against the CFPB, to everybody else who's either regulated by that agency or whose lives are, are harmed by that agency's actions and that agency's regulations, I think it's, it's one of the great disappointments of the first year of this administration that President Trump hasn't taken action against Richard Cordray. Henry? Yeah, yeah uh, I, I can't speak to the, the, the Cordray situation directly, but coincidentally, in the Wall Street Journal today, there was an editorial 
about the administration caving to the ethanol lobby on the, uh, the quotas, the requirements to mix certain amounts of ethanol into gasoline. And uh, the, the reason is that the, the uh, ethanol comes from corn, which is produced in certain states, and the senators from the corn-producing states held hostage Trump appointments to EPA. And uh, so EPA is going, to, uh, is going to reinstate, or continue, I should say, continue the ethanol quotas, even though it's bad public policy. Uh, it uh, pushes the, the price of, of corn up. It makes no sense environmentally or fiscally. And it's politics. So if a firing might uh, enshrine that the legal stature of the agency was okay, maybe better to wait for your suit to come through and throw out the whole thing rather than uh, fire the director and therefore uh, say that the agency exists as it was constituted and just needs a new director. And, you know, appointing somebody, uh, you know, a free market libertarian to run the CFPB and entrench him in that office of totally open-ended power with no real congressional oversight because it's not subject to the power of the purse might be one of those few things that might actually turn progressives more skeptical at mm -hmm. the idea of, of, of granting open-ended, unchecked power to a regulator. I recommend that this uh, committee be uh, vastly extended and expanded. Uh, we can think a lot of good issues. I'm glad you brought up ethanol because any small engine owner, lawnmowers, motorcycles, it's, it's a disaster yeah. and it's inefficient. And it's a, it's a brokerage deal. Uh, misused. Coal. Still, it's down to 30% of our electricity power generated in our country by coal. Now, coal is a cleaner fuel, vital to a lot of our economies, especially Wyoming. And if you really want a, a research product, project, and we can see it coming, research getting Regulation, something, I hate regulations. But the space issue, and I'm talking about the junk in the space. Have some fun with it, gang. <laughs> um, does anyone want to? Well, I would add on, on the ethanol. It, it, so I, there's this theory of regulation that it swiftly becomes captured to uh, put up the profits of, of uh, powerful industries. That's the case with ethanol. As Henry mentioned briefly, it's not even environmentally good. It actually creates more carbon than it does to just burn the oil. Uh, curiously, we, um, we, uh, we mandate ethanol, but we don't allow the one kind of ethanol that might make sense, which is ethanol made from Brazilian sugarcane, which is much more efficient. But that, of course, would undercut our sugar, partner, sugar farmers. So in fact, we want ethanol for the planet, but we only want high-priced American ethanol. We don't want low-priced uh, uh, Brazilian ones. Similarly, solar cells. There's a lot of subsidies for solar cells, which is you know green, whatever. But heavens no, we don't want cheap Chinese solar cells. Of right. course, the planet wants cheap solar cells, if that's what you want to do. No, now we're protecting high-priced American solar cells. It all quickly gets, uh, that's the danger with regulation. High, Nice sounding ideas quickly get uh, diverted into, into propping up profits. And I just want to point out, you remember the Solyndra case under the Obama administration? And when that thing went, went down, uh, they were competing against Chinese solar cells. And that's when that tariff went in on, on Chinese solar cells. Which just shows it's not about the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And I just want to point out, 
one of the things that concerns me in regulation is the cafe law, the cafe rules. That's not what you're drinking. That's corporate average fuel economy. And under Obama, they've scheduled that to increase the average fuel economy of a car within a few years, I think it's like no more than five years, mm -hmm. to be over 50 miles per gallon. Now, how would they do that? They're gonna to have to have a lot of electric cars. Elon Musk loves this, but it's, it's hugely damaging. I'm guessing uh, Trump will overturn it, but here's the problem. We, we got talking about the political incentives. If he overturns it, most people aren't even gonna know it. So he's gonna do a lot of good for the economy and get close to zero credit except from some car manufacturers and maybe 10,000 informed economists. And so, you know, it's a, it's a problem, but it's a problem in our future if he doesn't overturn it. Well, if he does a lot of good for the economy and he starts growing, That's they'll get true. the credit. That's true. Adam. On that point, I just want to amplify a point I made in my original remarks. Um, even if President Trump uh, and, and EPA Administrator Pruitt and, and the head of the DOT, uh, Secretary Chow, roll back these regulations, it could be just temporary. In fact, they might not even be rolled back at all once you take the, the sheer amount of time it takes to go through the regulatory process and then go through judicial review. But even if they were successful, the next administration could immediately pivot back in the other direction. And for companies, whether it's auto companies or manufacturing companies or the power sector, everybody that needs to make long-term plans begins to look over the horizon beyond these sort of short-term flips back and forth and tries to think about what's the long-term policy trajectory and begin to plan according to that. I mean, auto manufacturers, we're talking about cafe rules for model years 2022 to 2025 because they need the lead time of several years to say nothing of the infrastructure necessary to comply with things like the clean power plan. And so it's gonna take more than just these well-intentioned regulatory rollback efforts that are happening right now in the White House and the agencies. It's gonna require real work of sustained legislative reform to actually update and modernize the statutes at issue, whether it's the definition of pesticides, right, or it's the, the banking laws from the pre dodd frank banking laws to the Clean Air Act uh, and the Clean Water Act of, of 1968. These things need to be updated to give current regulators meaningful direction and limits in light of modern circumstances. One last thing. Oh, I, I got two, but uh, real quick. Just the cafe standards, it may not be obvious to why all you guys, why we're so against it. The most gas efficient car there is, is a Chevy Suburban with all the seats filled, being driven by somebody who has chosen to move closer to his work rather than live 50 miles away. By, by, by making it artificially, uh, by doing the cafe standard rule, you still have the incentive to live a long way away from work and to each drive in your own car. If instead there's, say, a, a carbon tax, if you're going to do it, put in a tax on it, then people have the incentives. The easiest way to save gas is not to buy a new car. Right. The easiest way to save gas is to move closer to your work or to have zoning laws that let you move closer to work and build houses closer to where you work, or to take the extra time to go together in a car. All of those things are missed by, by this sort of command and control, the cars must have 50 miles a gallon. Right. So we got that gentleman there, and then the one behind after that. This is for uh, Henry. You know, you talked about uh, let, let the uh, legislators uh, direct the things that you 
rather than have the regulators specify. Do you really believe they're capable of that? <laughs> well, that's a real difficulty. Uh, but it's the way the system currently operates. And they have responsibility for oversight. So the House Commerce Committee has oversight over FDA, and they need to crack the whip. And uh, uh, it, it's difficult. Not many of them have either the expertise or the interest uh, in it. But there are a few. Uh, you know, Congressman Eric Paulson of Minnesota has been terrific on trying to get rid of the excise tax on medical devices, for example. There's a uh, medical technology caucus, and uh, one would hope that uh, they'll, they'll do more. I, I'm not betting the farm on it. Henry, why, why doesn't the, the, uh, the company, the Aqua, the Aqua company, they have a congressman? Why don't they go visit their congressman saying they're, they're killing us? Use the homeowner. I presume the answer is they're scared that the FDA will retaliate on their next application. Yeah, but they have associations, so they can divorce it from individual companies. Uh, you're, you're right. I mean, Lilly and Merck are not going to make a lot of noise individually. Um, but um, there are... Uh, the, the, the companies are very reluctant to disturb the status quo. So for example, uh, some of us in the uh, community that studies drug regulation have suggested a good change would be uh, reciprocity of drug approvals between the FDA and its A-list of counterparts abroad, uh, the European Union, some Scandinavian countries, Australia, Canada. Uh, and so an approval in any one of those countries would automatically have the drug approved in uh, all the others. And uh, that would have the effect of both making products available sooner than they would be otherwise, alleviating drug shortages, uh, and also putting downward pressure on prices. The companies are just not buying into this. Uh, they don't want to disturb the status quo. And it's partly, partly what John suggested, that uh, they know that FDA is adamantly opposed to having its own power diluted and might retaliate. Is the rise in um, fintech um, reflecting a fundamental change in the way that Americans are going to borrow money, transfer payments, trade securities, etc.? Or is it really just a temporary regulatory arbitrage in a low rate environment? And one way or another, are we, should the government be not regulating it, regulating it? The Europeans seem to be, the regulators seem to be ignoring it largely. This is a question for John. Yes, thank you. And, and uh, uh, um, David said, make clear what fintech is. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of um, new tech going on, in, in, especially here in the Valley, of, of new financial uh, companies that try new models of things. Um, yes, there is a danger. Uh, a lot of the financial innovations last time around were just ways of getting around uh, regulations that made the system less stable. Uh, what I see in a lot of fintech is, is actually very hopeful. They are the weeds sprouting around the, the dinosaurs that I hope uh, are going to give us that uh, safe as well as, as efficient financial system. Uh, a lot of question being, will the regulators uh, let them do it? Um, uh, I, I hope the answer is yes. But by and large, it, it, as long as you're not cre issuing something that looks like demand deposits and creates a run possibility, 
then you're you're doing good. You're bringing savings to investors, and it's I mean savings to to uh, to businesses, and um, they're doing it in creative ways. And some of it's getting around the regulations, but a lot of the regulations are 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 designed to make it very hard to do. Ben Bernanke himself couldn't get a loan uh, for his mortgage when he quit um, because he walked into the bank and they said, "What your plan is? You're going to give a lot of speeches." That's not good enough. Uh, one of the fintechs, SoFi, who started here, realized that um, uh, Stanford MBA students are going to pay that back the student loans no matter how bad their credit ratings are. Again, gave them a lot of money. Now, they, they did it with venture capital money. They weren't issuing wholesale deposits, overnight funding, and so forth. And they started lending to Stanford students. That, that's a big success. Will that continue? Uh, you know, put yourself in a regulator's view, uh, shoes and say, oh, they're, they're lending money to Stanford MBAs. Hmm, uh, is that community fair lending, whatever, whatever? Um, the dangers are, are present. Uh, back there, um, the lady back there. This is a question for all of you. Uh, what do you think about proposals for automatic sunsets on regulations, and would that bypass some of the political will issues that you've been alluding to? I, I'll try to I'll start. Then I'll follow. Um, my first freelance article was in Human Events with an economist named Alan Reynolds in 1977, where we pointed out the downside of, of sunset laws. Let me tell you the downside, but then let me say why I think it's a good idea on that. The downside, so let's say it sunsets in five years. What's the world going to look like in five years? Are people going to just automatically renew it? There's a high probability of that. Are things going to be such that they want to be even more regulatory so you get an even worse law and then people have to adjust to that and they've learned how to adjust to the old law or the old regulation? Having said that, my gut feel is that it's a good idea. I, I want to double down on that. I wrote an essay for one of our previous ones called Rule of Law in the Regulatory State. We, we tend to think of just more regulation and less regulation as the issue. And that's, that's a uh, simplistic way of thinking about the problem. The problem is the nature of our regulation, not just the quantity of it. Regulation can be smart or dumb, can be effective or ineffective. And a lot of the problem with our regulation is the procedures by which it's put in, uh, not so much where there's too much of it or too little of it. Uh, the administration had this nice idea of a two-for-one rule. My worry about the two-for-one rule is it's very easy to simply merge paragraph A with paragraph B into a longer paragraph, and now you've cut the number of regulations. That didn't help. I'm a big fan of sunsets. Our regulations, we, we go through the procedures once, and then it's in forever. And then you have to go through the whole procedure to get rid of it, I mean, as the administration is now having trouble with. They want to get rid of obviously bad stuff. Whoops, Administrative Procedures Act, here we go. Uh, a sunset, make it five years, make it 10 years, where you have to go through the same procedure, do the cost-benefit analysis, and not just the ex-ante cost-benefit. You have to do some studies on, did this thing actually work? Yeah. Um, Retrospective, the ability to challenge regulators is another Im important one. Right now, regulators are, are prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner all rolled into one. Many businesses don't have the standard legal rights of discovery, of appeal, and so forth when faced with a regulator. So the mechanism of regulation needs fixing, not just the will to have more or less of it. Um, 
Henry and then Adam. I, I think for the sectors that I follow that have very long development times, uh, sunsetting would be unpalatable because they need certainty about what's required at the end of this very long and, and expensive journey. I think... Um, well, but, Henry, this isn't about the decision to approve your fish. This is about the rule. No, but the, but the, the goalposts could change by the end is, is the potential problem. Uh, it could be quantitatively different. It could be qualitatively different. But they they really want certainty when they're spending two and a half billion dollars to uh, to get a product a product through. Um, the the other uh, the the alternative, uh, although they're not uh, mutually exclusive, that I like is the Congressional Review Act, uh, which uh, enables Congress to. Uh, to vote, uh, to, to withdraw a, uh, a regulation, a significant regulation defined as a, an economic impact of $100 million annually or more. And uh, that's been done uh, more than a dozen times this year in the Trump administration. Uh, and uh, I think that's a, a, a good, useful mechanism. You know, I'm glad I'm going third on this because I'm of two minds on the um, the automatic sunsetting for exactly the reasons that John and Henry have just walked through. Um, and in any event, if we had automatic sunsetting, it's not hard for regulators to regulate. And it just takes time. So if they know that they need to have a new regulation in place five years down the road, they'll be able to do it, which illustrates what I think the real problem is in an important response. The real problem is the bureaucratic regulatory mindset that is able to propose a rule go through a few steps, and then finalize the rule. And in the middle, we'll have this kind of kabuki dance about notice and comment, but it doesn't really mean a whole lot. So what I think we really need is something that John alluded to, which is called retrospective review. I think that every time an agency creates a regulation, it should be required to go back five or 10 years later to review that regulation. Now, most people like that idea because it's a way to get regulations off the book. But what I think is the better benefit of this, even better than that, is it would change the regulator's mindset in that it would require them every 10 years or five years to go back and look at how good their projections were, how good their analyses were. And hopefully that exercise, that constant exercise of reviewing their own mistakes in hindsight might teach them a little bit of, of humility going forward with the regulations. And can I just capture one minute yes. of the time left on the table? I want to say one last thing about the bureaucratic mindset. Nothing captures this problem better, I think, than a book that was published a few years ago by the former head of the EPA's auto regulation unit. A real you know, beach reading. This book was called uh, Driving the Future, and it was, the, it was the, the memoir of Margot Oge, the regulator in the EPA that helped push through a lot of the climate and fuel economy regulations. You don't need to read the book so much as read the title, Driving the Future. This idea that the regulators think that they're the ones driving the future and that the rest of us are sort of road bumps along the way should be horrific. And the fact that this regulator liked the title so much, she put it on her own book, I think illustrates what a dangerous mindset the modern regulators have. By the way, you don't have to read the book. But I did a review of it in Regulation Magazine, published by Cato. So just do a little search, and uh, so you can see what I mainly disliked in the book. Um, rather than go with the last question, I'm going to go with a last comment. 
Yeah, I'd like to tell a little anecdote that illustrates what Adam just referred to as the bureaucratic mindset. Um, David mentioned in his introduction that my team approved human insulin uh, in five months at a far below the average time at, at the, at, in that period. Uh, we were actually ready at four months. And I, I went to my supervisor and I said, the application is stellar. Uh, all the dots, the uh, I's have been dotted and T's crossed, and we're ready to approve it. And he said, four months? We can't do it. If, <laughs> if anything goes wrong, people will say we rushed it. And, and so I don't know how long we were going to sit on that approval, but uh, I waited until he went on vacation the next <laughs> month, and then I went to his boss, and his boss, uh, the division director, signed off on it. Suffice this to say, that was not a great crowd pleaser. But this is how it works. R regulators, although they have lifetime tenure under civil service protection, they're still, still fearful of making a mistake, and uh, even inappropriately so. And that's the bureaucratic mindset. Thank you, Henry. And with that, I think we're done. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.